Anyway, for all of us, our text is Psalm 31. So if you'd like to open your Bible there, please, or navigate on your device. We're in a series uh, where we're looking at selected psalms. We call it Psalm Sundays. And I happen to be looking at psalms that either are messianic or that are quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. Psalm 31, the topic, David asked the Lord to deliver him speedily from his troubles. So the title of our message, Speedy Delivery. Anybody know who Mr. Rogers is? Raise your hand if you know who Mr. Rogers is. Oh, by the way, well, no, I'm not going to say that. I was going to recommend the Mr. Rogers movie, but somebody will find something offensive in it and then it'll be a thing. So I have no recommendation for you about that wonderful movie. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate your presence in this place. When we gather together, you say we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As your temple, Lord, we want to uh, be a place of worship and the study of the word. And individually as your temple, Lord, we want to grow in our knowledge and uh, understanding of your grace. Reveal yourself to us in many ways today, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. It's a little dated as a movie, but so am I. In the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood, his ragtag band of merry men were attacked in Sherwood Forest by barbaric Celts who had been hired by Nottingham. The, light, uh, the fighting was fierce, but Robin Hood and his company prevailed. Their victory, however, was short-lived. The sheriff was laying back with a much larger English force. That second assault would prove much more challenging. There's an element of secondary assault in Psalm 31. The first eight verses read as though David was recalling a past victory, a time in the past when God had delivered him from the fierce onslaught of his enemies. His situation in verses 9 through 24 occurred sometime later. It was a much more serious and lengthy adversity. The two seem juxtaposed so that we can see David drawing strength from what he had learned about God's mercies in the past in order to face his present predicament. Until you and I are with the Lord, we will find ourselves either acutely or chronically assaulted by enemies, both flesh and blood and supernatural. The predicaments will most likely become increasingly difficult and troublesome. In each of them, your reflection upon the Lord's past mercies is an important strategy to employ for deliverance, either from the trouble or through the trouble. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, it's important that you reflect on the Lord's mercies in past trouble. And number two, it's important that you expect the Lord's mercies in your present trouble. Let's take a look at David's past trouble in verses one through eight. Now, David, I believe, was looking back on a previous predicament. And to establish that, let's look first at verse 21. So scan down to verse 21, where it says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. That's the verse in the New King James. It mentions a strong city, but it's taken by many commentators to be metaphorical, as if I was in a strong city. Other commentators take it literally, basing their decision on how this reads in other good translations. Here it is in the New International Version, but there's many others that translate it this way. Verse 21, praise be to the Lord, for he has showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. In verse 8, David recalls, you have not shut me up unto the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. If we put all that together, David was definitely describing a time in his past 
when he was besieged in a city, but the Lord delivered him to a wide place. We're not told in the Psalm when or where this was. It does sound, however, like a time we know of before he was king and while he was still on the run from King Saul. David saved the city of Keilah only to be seemingly trapped there by King Saul. Here's the account from 1 Samuel 23. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now, again, this may not be the incident being recalled in Psalm 31, but it certainly sounds like it is. And if it isn't, it's something very much like that from David's past. He was reflecting on it as a present strategy to deal with what he was going through. And so let's get into it in verse one. To the chief musicians, a psalm of David, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. So David saw no shame in putting his trust in the Lord. For David, there were times in his life when as a great warrior and military man, he would put his trust in the Lord and the Lord would deliver him in unusual ways. I think last week we talked about one time when God told him to circle around back behind the enemy and wait until he heard marching in the treetops before he was to attack. And I mentioned how weird that would be to his generals. Okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to hear marching in the treetops. David, we are your mighty men. You're, you've killed Goliath with nothing but a sling. Let's just go at these guys. No, this is how the Lord wants us to handle it. David said, I'll never be ashamed of what the Lord tells me to do for his glory. The Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. If you're a Christian, you've been delivered once for all from the penalty of sin. You've passed from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You've been declared righteous by grace. You need never be ashamed to trust the Lord, even though your enemies mock and deride you. And sometimes you find yourself in places that seem unusually weak and, and almost foolish. Remember, we were in First Corinthians. We talked about how God uses foolish things and situations to confound worldly wisdom. And so don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. Trust in the wisdom of God. Bow down your ear to me, verse two. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress in defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your namesake, lead me and guide me. Is that painted rock thing still a thing? Are people still doing that, painting rocks and leaving them around? Okay, too bad. Way before it was a thing, there was a dear saint in our fellowship, Susan Calhoun. She's with the Lord now. She used to paint rocks with scripture on them. I've got a couple of them. One she painted for me, she misspelled the word fortress as fort rest. And now every time I read that word in the Bible, I can't help but think of that. And so I always read fort rest and I get a good chuckle. But you know, I, I've been thinking about that for years Fort rest is a great devotional thought. It's a great way to see a fortress. As believers, we know we're in the fort. With the Holy Spirit indwelling us, you have an innate sense that uh, you're in the fort as a metaphor. How many times have you heard somebody pray about having a hedge about them or a wall about them or being enclosed or safe? And so we know that we're in the Lord and that he's a fort. But I find that we worry that the defenses might not be sufficient. 
But how many times in history or in fiction does the enemy figure a way over, under, or through impregnable walls? Trojan horse? Wow. That's who thought that they could get into the, you know, the uh, walls of Troy. In the Bible, they go under the walls of Babylon by diverting the river, and, and they come in and they take the city. Lord of the Rings, they blow up uh, at Helm's Deep, that little irrigation kind of thing that's happening in order to breach the walls. And so uh, our experience is filled with breached walls. And so you know you're in the fortress, but you wonder if the walls are going to hold. Or if you know the walls are going to hold, you wonder how long the siege is going to continue. How long am I going to be under siege? Do I have enough toilet paper to last this siege? (laughs) I'm beginning to think not, but... (laughs) The Lord is a fort of rest... Don't forget to rest when you're in the fort and, and let the Lord uh, guide and direct you. I'm not saying it's not going to be difficult or there's not going to be pressure or stress. In fact, I'm going to suggest later that you may never get out of the difficulties that you're in, but you can rest in them knowing that the walls will hold and your resources are inexhaustible. Verse four, pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. David felt he had been caught in a net. Think of those net traps in the jungle where you trip it and it closes around you while lifting you high off the ground. Then people come and they beat on you with sticks. I love those traps. You're stuck there waiting for your foe to return. If there's something we could call the secret here, uh, you know, what, what is it bottom line or a key? It's to know for you are my strength. One of our favorite verses here, not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit, says the Lord. Uh, And and it's a reminder that the Lord indwells us, guides us and leads us and empowers us to do his will. Paul, the apostle chided the Galatians. He said, having begun in the spirit, are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? And yet that's our default because we still have these unredeemed bodies. We start wonderfully in the spirit. Sometimes I think I was never more spiritual than the the moment I accepted Christ. I didn't care about anything at that moment other than Jesus Christ. You could have done anything to me, taken everything away from me. Uh, you know, I would have laughed and rejoiced in the Lord. And then as the years go by, you, you, sign up, you, you grow on the Lord, but you also get a little bit, you know, I don't even know the word for it, but you know, all of a sudden you start to worry and be anxious and concerned and all of these different things. But we need to revert to the spirit and we can. I love, you know, not everybody has an adult conversion experience. I recognize this. I remember Gino came to me one time many years ago. He says, Dad, you're always talking about your conversion experience, but a lot of people graciously grew up in a Christian home and they've been Christians all their lives. They don't have that experience. But many of you do. And if you've had that experience, you can always return to that and think, wow, I just, I was just so filled with the Lord. You know, I, why am I not like that now? And, and it can spur you on to just release yourself to the Lord and trust the Lord again. And I would encourage you to do that. And if you didn't have that experience, if you've been saved all your life, you can still uh, understand that it, it's a life by the spirit, not by the world, what the world is telling you to do. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Where have you heard that before? Well, you've heard it from Jesus on the cross. He committed his spirit to the father and he died. Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. 
Now notice Jesus did not quote the whole verse. He didn't say, you have redeemed me. He wasn't being redeemed because he was the redeemer. And so that part of the verse didn't apply to him. He was God in human flesh. He came from heaven to earth to be our substitute in order that we might believe him and be declared righteous by God. Jesus quoted from there, but it's not considered a prophecy. In other words, this isn't a prophecy of Jesus on the cross. It's a prayer that Jesus himself drew from. And I think that's precious. The Lord, creator of heaven and earth, quoted David. Uh, Actually, he's quoting the Holy Spirit who inspired David, but he quoted from David as a prayer that is applicable to any Christian at the moment of death. In fact, one commentator said the language was appropriate for Jesus as it is for all in the hour of death. And his use of the words furnished the highest illustration of their being appropriate in that hour. The act of the psalmist was an act of strong confidence in God in the midst of dangers and troubles. The act of the Savior was of the same nature, commending his spirit to God in the solemn hour of death. The same act of faith is proper for all the people of God alike in trouble and in death. It would be a great psalm, obviously, but a great verse to share with those who are uh, in hospice or on the moment of death. God is into your hands. Commit the Lord's commit your spirit to the Lord. And what a wonderful thing to know that the moment you're absent from the body, you're what? Present with the Lord. You know, there's a lot of movies and such. They try and, you know, you, people die and then they have a little bit of a journey. They have to climb stairs or go down a long tunnel where there's a white light. Oh, white light? Yeah. See that white light? I'm getting closer and closer. No. Be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Lazarus, when he died, the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus died, angels accompanied him immediately into, the, uh, into Abraham's bosom. And so, um, you know, unto thy hands I commit my spirit. I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. This means that David went directly to the Lord. He didn't try to mix idolatry with the true religion. He wasn't looking for ideas from Baal or the latest book about Dagon or any of these things. He wasn't going to seminars, uh, you know, about these different gods and seeing how they were actually in line with Christianity. And, and you know, that's, that's a lot of what happens out there today. I, I remember early on, the, there was a, a, it's not so much anymore a big deal because people have either settled into it or if they've rejected it, but psychology. Remember, psychology was, a big, it was invading the church. Everybody was saying, oh, you know, this, these terms of Freud, they're really secular terms, but they're scriptural ideas. How? Godless man? Hey, a God-hater? Carl Rogers, who spoke to demons? I mean, he really did. He said he did. Well, he didn't call them demons. He said they were spirits. How do his ideas mix with biblical Christianity and biblical psychology? So David said, I, Lord, I just go to you. I want your wisdom. I'm not ashamed of it. I'll be glad and rejoice in your mercy. For you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul and adversities. Uh, This is my favorite verse in this psalm. Not that that means anything, but I thought you'd want to know. How does the Lord know your soul in adversities? Strong's Concordance. If you've ever looked in the Concordance or especially Strong's, you'll note sometimes that a word can be translated dozens of different ways. That means we have to look at context. So a lot of times if somebody says, if I say, or somebody says, hey, this word means this, maybe it does, 
maybe it doesn't. It depends on the context. You want to develop a whole thought around just one word. But this word can be translated, make known. That way it would read, you have made known my soul in adversities. So God already knows you thoroughly. We would agree on that. It seems that he wants to make known to show you and your adversaries what he already knows. And that's a good summary of what happens in the first two chapters of Job, is it not? God already knows his servant Job. Job doesn't know Job in terms of what he is capable of enduring. And Satan thinks he can destroy Job. And so through that amazing book, God makes known Job to the devil, to his contemporaries, and to people from all generations forward. One of the things he makes known to Job is this declaration of Job's. He said, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. You can't say that until you think God is going to kill you. Now, Job, you know, his theology wasn't perfect because he lived a long, long time ago with very little revelation, but he was saved. He believed God, saved by grace through faith. And he made the declaration, though God slay me, I will trust him. And so, and, and, you know, I, I wonder if somebody had come to him before his trial and said, hey, if God killed you, would you still trust him? And he said, oh, of course I would. Well, how do you know? Because that's not really happening. And so God makes known what he already knows. Job did not know how he would react under real stress. And Satan was confident God would lose. Iron Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and a lot of people, when they fought Mike, <laughs> their plan didn't last too long, if you ever see. Sometimes just for fun, because I'm kind of a wimpy guy, I like to watch, you know, you, you come across fights, you know, uh, famous fights, Muhammad Ali or whatever, Mike Tyson, and they're just snippets of the knockouts. I mean, you couldn't pay me enough money to get in the ring with that guy at his prime. I mean, it was insane. Everybody's plan, you know, their, their approach. It's like the Rocky movie where he, he decided to fight right-handed against Clubber Lang. Remember that? That was the big, oh, Rocky's fighting right-handed. But he got clobbered, you know, like he always does. I love Rocky. You just beat him and beat him and beat him. But he's, that's, that spirit, the in, indefatigable Rocky. Ooh. Isn't that a great scene? The only good Rocky movie is the first one, of course, and it's a great movie. But remember when he gets up and he's all, there's blood coming out of every pore and, and he gets up and, ooh. I only do that because Rocky and his manager, the only, inter uh, the only impressions I can actually do. <laughs> Whatever the Lord decided in answer to David, he was going to categorize it as mercy and he would rejoice and be glad. The time that David had a son from Bathsheba and God decided that that child was going to be taken to heaven. David fasted and he prayed and he waited and he waited. When the child died, he got up, he took a shower, he started eating. He received it as God's mercy, and he rejoiced in it and was glad. Verse 8, you have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Again, this sounds like what occurred at Keilah. As you read on in that episode in Samuel 23, it says, So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. 
Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. And so David was set in a wide place. He was removed from the city and set in this wide place. But notice this wide place was still a place of danger. And that's why it's important to maybe think about David and where he might have been, because when we read that, we think, oh, well, God took me you know, out of this siege that I was in, and now I'm in a wide place, a wonderful place. No, you're still in a place of danger. You're just not in imminent danger. Recall a time in the past when God's mercy attended your adversities. If you are having trouble, just go back to the time you got saved. I'd say you were in some pretty serious adversity then. Hell doomed sinner on your way to hell. Jesus delivered you from death and from the power of sin and from the captivity of the devil. You didn't deserve it. That's why it's mercy. You can trust him to be merciful today and every day. One of our favorite sayings as Christians, certain things Christians pick up right away. I don't know how this happens, but there's certain phrases. And one of them is your mercies are what? New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You may not recognize mercy as mercy, however. That's because this side of heaven, they can be what C.S. Lewis labeled severe mercies. I mentioned David and his child. It was a severe mercy that God decided to take that child to heaven. It's more important that the Lord make known your soul than you be in a state of blessing and bliss. Blessing and bliss awaits us in heaven. And we're going to have that for eternity. Meantime, God wants to make known your soul and give you kind of a check on your progress sometimes. Because we can say a lot. We can look at things and say, oh, when, when persecution hits, I'm going to do this. And then persecution hits. And then you find out God makes known your soul. Find out what it's going to be like. And usually you find out that you're, not that you're stronger than you know, but that God is stronger than you know. And you're able to endure in his strength. It's important you expect the Lord's mercies in your present trouble. What do Jonah, Jeremiah, and Jesus have in common besides the fact that their names begin with the letter J? Well, they each quoted from Psalm 31 in their adversary, adversities. Rather. The writer of Psalm 73, who's Asaph, he also seemed inspired by Psalm 31. Those guys are four of the Bible's greatest sufferers. If this psalm could comfort them, think of what it can do for us. Have mercy on me, O Lord, verse 9, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. These feelings need no exposition. If you're human, you've experienced them to a certain degree. One thing that does need clarification is where David says it was through his own iniquity, meaning I brought this on myself. Other translations read, my life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. I think we're going to miss the point if we say David brought this trouble on himself. That's what Job's comforters claim to their shame. Commentators and translators want to blame David because it's an easy out. If David says, I brought all this trouble on myself, then they can say, well, you're only going to feel this way if you're sin and bring this trouble on yourself. But in fact, you and I both know, obviously we're sinners, but we don't always bring trouble on ourselves and we feel these ways. And so uh, the psalm is meant to comfort us, not to rebuke us. Uh, this would be like Job's comforters coming to you in your adversity and saying, oh, well, you deserve it. 
you're a sinner and you deserve what God is doing. Certainly that's not the point of this psalm. The point is God is with you in these adversities. The commentators don't know what to do with emotional pain. David knew emotional pain deeply. It's part of knowing his soul. Obviously he worked through it, but it took time. He suggests it took years. He mentions there were years of sighing. Some of you know what that's like. And some of you are going through something like that right now. It doesn't maybe dominate your life, but you've had years of sighing in some area of pain and, and, and sorrow that you just can't shake because it's so real. When you're hurting, it can take time to work it out spiritually. And time isn't what heals the wounds, but it gives you the opportunity to work things out with the Lord. You're to rejoice in the Lord always, but that's sometimes your future hope you know that you can get to that place. You don't feel that way right now, but you know that's possible. You've been there before. You're going to ascend there with the Lord's help. What if someone told you that your pastor was sunken so low in depression that he wept by the hour as a child, yet didn't know what he wept for, or that he described life as a beclouding hopelessness? Well, if someone told you that, your pastor would be Charles Spurgeon. The prince of preachers fought emotional pain all his life. We need to retire our cliches and understand that Christians can hurt and still be godly, still serve the Lord. And they can't always immediately change. Verse 11, I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. And I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel. I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. These verses describe David's treatment by others, and not just by his enemies, which you would expect. He says neighbors and acquaintances also are treating him poorly. Again, we're not told what event prompted this, but it seems like it was the time David fled from the palace as his own son, Absalom, marched to overthrow and then kill his father. This would at least match his feelings at that time. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Maybe you're being ignored or mocked or slandered by people, by enemies for sure, but also acquaintances and neighbors. You're not being done by Jesus isn't doing that, not by your Father in heaven, not by the indwelling Holy Spirit. In the Lord's merciful love, you find all that is necessary to overlook the onslaught of others. I know it's hard, but, you know, the opinions of others don't matter. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'm not saying you always discount what people tell you who really love you and are trying to seek what's best for you. But you can't base, um, well, I was going to do a big thing on self-esteem. You need Christ esteem. What does Jesus think of me? And he would never treat me in these ways. He corrects, he can rebuke and reprove, but he, he does it in a loving way. And we have to get that all that matters is what Jesus thinks of me. Uh, a servant stands or falls to his master, not to other servants. And that's hard, I know, because we all like to be thought well of and have everybody love us and say good things about us and never gossip about us and all of that. You all want to be me, I know. But anyway, <laughs> all that matters is that you're going to stand by yourself with Jesus at the end and he's going to, Look into your face. You're going to see his beautiful face and you'll realize, what did I care so much about what other people thought? My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. 
from those who persecute me? We use the expression, just wait till I get my hands on you. Well, if you're saved, you're in God's hand. He got his hands on you at the cross. He holds you tight. It's a more of a positive expression for a Christian. I've got my hands on you, Gene. Verse 16, make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. So David is asking God for his face to shine upon David. He's not wanting his own face to shine. This isn't a Moses thing where he says, hey, I'd like to have a shiny face like Moses when he came down. He says, Lord, you make your face to shine upon me. We talk about lighting up when we see someone, right? He just lit up. Uh, I had a really cool surprise first service. I was sitting here watching the worship team uh, get ready. And this young man came up and he said, he said, hi, Pastor Gene. I go, hi. And I, I knew I knew him from somewhere. But if you introduce yourself to me today, I won't know you tomorrow. I mean, it, you know. So he said, you don't recognize me, do you? And I go, oh, no, I recognize you. I just don't know who you are. That's not an oxymoron. And he told me who he was. And, you know, he's a kid. Um, his, his dad's still in the church. He's a kid that used to come to church like 20 years ago. And I haven't seen him in, I don't know, I'm going to just say 20 years. And um, now he's all grown up, you know, and that kind of thing. And I know my face lit up when I saw him, when I realized it was him for lots of different reasons. I mean, what a heartwarming situation, you know. He's coming to just hear what the Lord has to say to him and stuff like that. Made me glad we were here today and that kind of stuff. But, uh, and so, you know, this says David thinks that there are times when God's face lights up when he sees you. Can you even imagine that? Do you think you're a bother to God? Do you think you're giving God trouble all the time? Do you, you know, how, what kind of a relationship do you think you have with God? God says, I, 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 my face shines when I see you. You're, you're, you're wonderful to me. I died for you. I love you. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. David wasn't wishing his enemies would die. He wanted them to be silent like dead men. Uh, dead men tell no tales, you might say. That kind of thing. He wasn't saying, God, kill them all. He just said, hey, shut them up. Let them be as dead men. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. The gist of these verses is that previously when David was besieged in the strong city and thought himself cut off from help, God delivered him and he gave David hope of deliverance again in his present trouble. David spoke of being hidden secretly in a pavilion. Again, God was his fortress, his fort of rest, but it's a secret fort. It's hard to assail a secret fort. You have to find it first, right? And so you're, at a, you're in a secret fort of rest. I, it's a great great picture. And here he calls it a pavilion, which gives you the idea that it's a place of uh, luxury and sumptuousness. And so just meditate on those thoughts. A while ago, we pointed out that the most common description of believer in the New Testament is to say you are in Christ. A while back, there was a big discussion about whether uh, we should be called Christians or Christ followers. And uh, what we should be called is in Christ, because that's what the Bible says. And it's a great description. 
I'd rather be in Christ than just following along, uh, if you know what I mean. Listen to these two verses from Colossians. I've run them together. It's Colossians 3, 3 and 2, 3. Paul the Apostle said, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so you're in Christ who's in God and with all that you have treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You might be in a city under siege, literally or figuratively. You might be being hunted down in the wilderness, literally or figuratively, but you're in Christ and therefore you have every spiritual resource available to you. Oh, love the Lord with uh, all you saints for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. This sort of reminds me of the end of all things. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what David intended, but uh, in the end, believers will be preserved. He will preserve the faithful and non-believers are going to receive their pay. At the, as they stand before the great white throne, they're going to receive what they're due. What is their wages? Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. And so it's payday. It's a very, very sad payday for non-believers. It's always a good idea to look forward. And, you know, as far forward as you can look, you're going to be all right if you're a Christian. You're going to, you know, this isn't phase one. And if we get to the end, then phase two begins where we get, you know, you know tried again. This is the end. You die and you're with the Lord. You're raptured and you're with the Lord. Changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We, we spent a lot of time a few weeks ago talking about how finally God will have that rarest of, of creatures, a human being with free will who cannot sin. It just stunned me when I realized that. A human being with a free will who cannot sin. You say, well, wait a minute. How can you have a free will and not sin? God has free will and can't sin. You would never think God could sin. If somebody said, well, God has a free will, but he can sin. No, of course not, because he's God. And once God's done with us, we will have free will to love and, and be in love with him as he is with us and be incapable of sin. And so that's all in the future. And so you can always, always count on that. So hope in the Lord, verse 24, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart and hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord, he'll strengthen your heart, you'll be courageous as you face your adversities. That's not a formula. I used to want to reduce things to formulas like hate, uh, hope plus strength equals courage. But I realized that these are three simultaneous things that are present in your walk with the Lord, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker, but they're all going on at the same time. Hope in the Lord. He saved you. He goes on saving you. He will save you in the end. He may rapture you. That's our blessed hope. If not, into his hands, you will commit your spirit. Strength in the Lord is the promise that he has provided you all you need for life and godliness. You are stronger than you know, and he wants to show you that you are. Courage makes me think of our idiom, take courage. We can take courage as we hope in the Lord and have strength from the Lord. It's something that you can take already because it's yours. Courage is yours. Boldness is yours to just take. In the most recent Wonder Woman, there are hints early on that Diana is more than she knows. At one point in her training, she instinctively brings her arm bracelets together and a wave of power is emitted that bowls everyone over. By the way, I was thinking about that. Jesus did that one time, not with bracelets, but when they came to arrest him the night of his crucifixion, they asked him a question. And he says, well, I am. And they all fell over backwards, all those with clubs and swords that had come for him. 
just establishing who was really in charge. And Jesus, of course, submitted to the Father's will and went to the cross for us. Now, I'm not saying we should be able to knock people down with Holy Spirit power. I am saying that we have more power than we realize in our adversities. We need to come to that moment again and again when we understand that we really, really do have everything we need in the adversity that we find ourselves. Maybe it's acute, maybe it's chronic, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's a severe mercy, that doesn't matter. This time we have on earth is so temporary, it's so fleeting. It's like a, James says what? It's like a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes away. Everybody vapes now, right? At first they said, oh, it's the healthy way of smoking. <laughs> Come on. And so, you know, you just, and that vapor goes away. That's what life is. It's like grass that withers. We live for eternity. So live it well.